Hi, I'm Marcus. I've been working in the area of ageing and longevity for over 25 years, both here in Australia and right across the world. And I want us to develop new thinking on getting older. Booming the podcast is about unlocking the mysteries of getting older in today's society. It's about understanding the opportunity we have to embrace our new longevity and overcome the challenges that we'll encounter along the way. My heart burns off the Richter scale. The only reason I sit up is because of my acid reflux. Denise Scott is one of Australia's most loved actors and comedians, having success in TV, on stage, in radio, as an author, and perhaps most prominently as an award-winning stand-up comedian. I can't talk about my kids anymore. Oh, well, you know, that's what their lawyer told me. Um, oh, dry vaginas, Mark. We've got to get it out. Perhaps Denise's greatest success is that of longevity in an industry that is renowned for short careers. Sometimes I find um, the scene ageist, and I was also guilty of it. You know, had ageist assumption. This sounds corny, but I feel blessed to be aged. In this chat, Denise shares with us her insights on ageing, relationships and her priorities as she moves through different phases of life. Denise Scott, welcome to Booming. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be wanted. Well, you're certainly wanted, I can assure you of that. Denise, I mentioned in the introduction that longevity must be one of your greatest achievements in a in an industry that tends to churn through people pretty rapidly. You must feel proud of, of your career to date. Uh, yes and no. It's interesting because I, I don't feel, I don't know whether proud is the word. I'm really glad, I'm really grateful I get to do it still. Certainly that. Yeah. I think um, I think a lot of people when I first started, the people I was working with who actually went on to achieve stardom quite early in their careers would not believe that I, of all that peer group, is, was the one person that just kept hanging in there. I showed no signs of being that person when I first started. You know, no signs of it. And I, I, it, doing comedy made me physically ill. I'd vomit before gigs. I, I often failed, often. And so I'd be embarrassed, mortified, you know. Yeah. And then, but I just found myself wanting, I wanted to try and get it right which you never do in comedy. You never actually finish. You know, it's not like, oh, finally, I am a brilliant comedian. Finally, (laughs) that's arrived. So it's given me something to strive for. Um, And I found it, it weirdly balanced with having kids, as in that, that they are who I exploited in my material and also my partner John we've been together 40 years and who knew 40 years ago that I was hooking up with a man who adores being talked about on stage doesn't matter whether I'm you know being quite mean in a way I'm really telling (laughs) quite a personal story and um doesn't care loves it yeah so those things worked in my favour. In, indeed, and, and I've heard you speak about you feeling more free in your work later in your career than earlier. How has that changed your approach to your work now as opposed to earlier on? I, um, 
I still get nervous and I still really want to do my best, but it's not the achieving that goal I, is not what my life is about. Like, like that's my job and I still want to do it, do it really well. But I think the freedom comes from I really and truly, like I did that gig for 50 people. I loved it. I don't do that gig and think maybe this is the night someone will see me and I'll get my own show on TV. And I don't have any of that kind of pressure anymore. Right. I just think, well, this could be the last gig I ever did. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. And so that's, that's liberating. And is that, are there different challenges for you now at this stage of your career than what you faced earlier in terms of things that you, uh, I note what you said about not having those particular goals, but in terms of things that challenge you now, they're different to what's challenged you in the past. Yes. Um, a challenge is getting the energy up because I'm, I, I am, a, in many ways, I've disappointed myself, Marcus, in my ageing. I, I, I drink wine. I don't exercise enough. I, so I'm not like super fit, shall we say. And so energy for me is a problem. And also the anxiety that comes with certain gigs. Um, like if I do have you been paying attention, uh, the anxiety is sickening right. for two days beforehand. And as I age, that, which is normal for a comic, but as I age, that means, you know, I've got heartburn. <laughs> My heartburn's off the Richter scale. Um, it, yeah. You know, I talk about heartburn, and I, you know, and, and my lack of motivation. I say sometimes the only reason I sit up is because of my acid reflux. <laughs> you know, because I'm just, I lie on my bed a lot. I, but once I'm out, I love it. And also with ageing, I find what do I talk about, you know, because I, I can't talk about my kids anymore. Oh, well, you know, that's what their lawyer told me. I'm <laughs> bang. I'm glad you got that. I was dreaming. Well, they don't mind, but I can't. They're in their 30s and they've got their own lives. And um, John's still good value, my partner. Good. Oh, I think I've got 20 minutes out of him going for a colonoscopy. <laughs> what an attention-seeking bit of business that all was. Sometimes I find um, the scene... Ageist, like I like making jokes about being old, and I, I really have to say right up front, I love Sam Pang making jokes about me being old. But then you'll get to a whole lot of other people making, and you think, just shut up. I have people making jokes about being old to me who are 59 yeah. years old themselves, you know? <laughs> like, get a grip. So I, I believe you were about 34 when you first hit the road touring and I think you were told at that stage that you were you were too old to to be on the road and so uh, judging by what you were just saying that um, some of those prejudices are still very much there and you're experiencing them in your professional life well not so much because um, clearly people who come to my shows who actually choose to come I'm not foisted upon them you know a little hotel gig which often happens it's like and now Denise Scott is like, oh my 
young crowd and they look really disappointed. But um, but so people who come to my shows are there because they want to see me and hear what I've got to talk about. So it's quite, it's it, I don't meet with it a lot in the live arena. Being on telly, it's honestly, to be on it at all, at the age of 66, female, white, overweight, I haven't got white teeth, they're discoloured. Everything sort of it goes against what is wanted on television now. But still I manage to pop up, you know, occasionally, which I appreciate. As you've referred to, you do talk a lot about your family and your comedic work and um, uh, with great affection and, and obviously family means a lot to you. Your children both were living overseas for a period and, and that's something which is, I guess, becoming more common that families are separated by, by geographic distance. How did you maintain connection with, with your children when you were living so far apart? Well, it's an interesting question because I always assumed that I would just easily stay in touch with my kids. But um, my daughter, Bonnie, for a while was living in, or she lived for many years in America, and for part of that time was in New York, a visual artist, living life really on the edge, like, you know. And, uh, and in fact, it's interesting, I assumed she didn't want that much contact, like, you know, stay away, kind of leave me to it. In retrospect, um, I've since learned, oh, no, it would have been actually fine if, I, if I'd made quite a bit more effort, you know. Yeah. I just assumed that. But um, in her case, she's now living back in a suburb right next to me. She came back because of COVID in New York at, when it first all first started and so many people were dying in New York. She got out and uh, I heard that met a, a little birdie told me that may have been contrary to your advice when she left. Yes, yes, because she rang me and she was saying, oh, you know, because she was teaching art in an after-school care program to in a very poor school that um, in New York that hadn't, that was, wasn't going to be shut down because they were all poor kids and they didn't shut down those schools. And there was, and she said, I, I think I've got to get out, Mum, you know. And I went, now listen here, you've made this decision You've got through a lot of challenges now. You just stay put and hang in there and see this through, little lady. Sage and advice. Like, she took no notice of me. <laughs> Literally one of the last planes out. <laughs> when family is living away, do you do you feel as though we need to depend on others more when when family is at a distance? Yes, I I do, but I think the the tug and the bond of family is an overwhelming, uh, irreplaceable thing. John and I got used to our kids, like we're quite a small unit anyway, and with both them and their partners at the time and uh, living overseas and seemingly that was it, they were going to stay there, it did feel weird and like, oh, well, yes. And so we did start investing a bit more energy, I suppose, in... Um, friendships and uh, like as in getting together for meals that were more like a family, yeah. like you would have done with family. Do you think there's a difference between the generational relationships that say you had with your parents 
as to the one you have with your children now? Oh, very much so. For instance, you know, my, my dad died when I was in my 20s, so I didn't get to hang out with him that much as an adult. But, and he certainly never saw me become a comedian or anything like that. My mother was the most conservative woman and it was a hellish thing for her to watch her 34-year-old daughter become a comedian and she really hated it. She, it's not, well, she did actually say it once, but most of the time it was that silence mm -hmm. that that generation of people born in the 1920s, you know, they don't like something, but they don't say it. Yeah. It's just like this feeling you get. And um, so mum never came and saw me perform, or she did once, it was a disaster. Whereas, of course, with my kids, because my son started performing gigs, being a musician, when he was quite young. Right. And we'd go to every gig. Um, I'm not so emotional, but John would cry, yeah. you know, with emotion and, oh, and rave about him and we'd just be there, carry, John would carry all the equipment. You know, I, I didn't expect a lot from my mum. <laughs> like, what, what do you, you mean know, by like, that? I, I, well, I just, it was enough for me to go to her house and have a roast dinner. And, and in fact, because my father had died, we were sort of there to look after her. You know, we, we'd go to her place, whereas my kids are more like, well, when are you coming to Nashville? <laughs> Denise, your mum lived with dementia, was that? Was yeah. That right? When was that first detected? Can you tell us a little bit about, the, I guess, what you first started noticing and, and what action you may have taken then? Well, you know, she was, as I said, she was never that generous about my work, but aside from that, she was very loving and really loving towards her grandchildren and towards me and adored John. Uh, first notice she started um, actually bitching about uh, her, uh, one of her sister-in-laws and it was just weird. Like I kept, I, I was thinking that- Out of character. That's not true. Like to the point where I wanted to ring my auntie and say, did you ring and say this to my mother? And right. Anyway, I let it go. I thought, oh, whatever. And then it really happened when um, my best friend, Linda Gibson, uh, was dying of, of um, ovarian cancer and I'd been really close to her and my mum, I'd try and talk to her and she'd just dismiss it as though she didn't even know who Linda was or had no interest and was, and I was like, that's, strange and then of course that progressed and we knew and my sister was amazing like because <laughs> I'd be like pussyfooting around mum you yeah. know and my sister just went mum we think you've got Alzheimer's you've got to go to the doctor we've made an appointment and like wow well wow, that went down well yeah I'm sure. but that's what that's how it's yeah it was that's how it started and how did you feel as things progressed obviously your you're seeing your mum, I guess, transition in terms of what she started living with and, and I guess what you were experiencing. How, how did you feel through that, that process and the different stages that you all went through? It was the most continuous period of unrelenting stress ever. Between my sister and I, we didn't know what to do. 
And and I found that the most fascinating and ups, very sad part of the journey is that because so many people experience having a parent or a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's, it's so hard to find out what you do. It's it, and you think that this is happening everywhere. And I literally say to people, yeah, yeah, I know I've got to do that, but but how? I don't know how to. Do I start looking at homes? Do I? I don't know. And I was working on breakfast radio at the time, so I'd be getting up at four a.m. and and there'd be a call, you know. Someone had found mum down the shops and tell me that mum didn't know how to get home or and I'd be crying. I'd have to leave radio because yeah. my mum was still living at home. It was just horrible. Yeah. It was a, and, and it, for me, in hindsight, I regret we didn't get her into care earlier, but we sort of thought she was coping better than she was. And in the end, that's what happened. I, one day... I just went into the producer of the show and my colleagues and I said, I'm not coming to work tomorrow and I don't know if I'll, I'll come back again because I have to now just be with my mum 24-7 because I don't know what to do next. Anyway, the next day we got her into respite care and it all sort of worked itself out in a way. From your lived experience then, what's a key piece of advice you'd give to to families who are trying to navigate through a similar sort of stage of life? I would say be courageous and start telling your parent what's happening or or your loved one or whoever it is, take charge. And and it's horrible because, because of course, you then make mistakes as well. Sure. It's not like you just... You, oh wow! What I did today was the best thing they could have done. But take charge. And there's no and manual to follow, is there? There isn't. There really isn't. And also go. Oh, it's it's ridiculous. Like as if you're not. But go along with their story, no matter what it is. Yeah. Agree. Laugh. Get yeah. outraged with them. Yeah. You referred to your own aging earlier. How do you feel about getting older? I feel. As I said, a little disappointed in myself. I thought I would be, because um, I'd always been a person who certainly I wasn't into like sport as such, but I was very active, like love gardening, love walking, you know, just being out and about in the world. And I got arthritis in my 50s some point and it really hurt. My knees were stuffed. All of a sudden it was like overnight. Really? And I really, instead of kind of seeking as much help as I could, or I just kind of went with, I just sort of thought, oh, well, that's it. I, I Instead of fighting it, which I thought I was, I always thought I'm a fighter. Yeah. I just kind of went, oh, yeah, all right, I'll go to bed. and All right, I won't wear shoes. I wear, I, you know, I haven't worn a pair of pleasant-looking shoes <laughs> for years. But I also love working and ageing. I feel that's really great, a great, like I, I haven't ever seen, oh, I shouldn't be working, I shouldn't be doing comedy now, I'm 66. Yeah. Like, and I also, according to my manager, am really filthy now as a comedian, which I never was. 
as I'm aging, I'm becoming a filthy old community. Part of that and freedom you're feeling that you yeah, were talking about I love earlier. It. <laughs> I love it. And I'm humbled, really humbled by aging because I used to judge my mum, you know, people around her. No, it's very a bit, harsh. Bit of judgment. Yeah, very, a lot. And now I think, oh, here I am, and I can't get up from weeding the garden. <laughs> you know, and I'm stuck down on all fours in the garden thinking, Jesus, am I just going to stay here till John gets home? <laughs> or cry for help from a pastor. <laughs> Can you help me get up from the garden? And that might, you know, being on all fours. Denise, ageing for women, what, what is different for, for women as they get older? Oh, dry vaginas, Marcus. We've got to get it out there. <laughs> but gee, Judith and I don't. See, I used to do routine about that. And now it's happened to Judith, who's much younger than me, and she's doing it. There's not room, enough room for the it's two of us. <laughs> but for women, well, you, you, you've got the choice now, I guess, of getting Botox and you don't have to have wrinkles. If you, I guess there is that, but I... And that's a pressure. Mm. I never thought I'd feel it, but especially every time I go into a makeup room in television land, I look 30 years older than anyone. Like I look ancient because I am the only one in the whole building that has wrinkles. Having said all that, I feel, this sounds corny, but I feel blessed to be ageing. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm really lucky that I'm alive because it's not a given, that's for sure. You know, I've lost friends and I think, wow, and I get to still be here and still work and enjoy myself. That's a wonderful yeah. attitude. Yeah, I think it's, I feel really lucky. You, you've touched on both the, the, the physical and and the psychological aspects of, of ageing. Do you consciously focus on one or the other at, at different points or I think I focus on the physical side but do bugger all about it <laughs> I, I do think about it and it's interesting maybe that's the part because I used to have much more um, mental strength and I noticed that in my peers who are aging most of them still have this real strength out them they are off marching around the you know parks and uh, loving, embracing um, retirement, mm. uh, getting new interests. I have a friend. She's not a oh, she's sixty. She's taken up skateboarding like full on, and she is awesome at it. Really, like absolutely awesome at it, and just goes off skating every day. Like got a little board under her arm, like, yeah. and. I really admire that, whereas for some reason, ageing for me, I've, I've kind of lost confidence in doing new stuff, apart from in work. I do keep challenging myself in work. Do comics retire? Uh, not really. I think maybe it's an ego thing. You just need to keep fueling that ego. Mm. You need to come out and have people applaud. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that comics do retire. I mean, I mean Barry Humphreys. What is he about to do another tour? Or I don't know. Just looking a little more broadly in terms of the way 
society views aging and, and getting older, what do you think we can change or, or correct in terms of some of the stereotypes that are still so strong in the way they permeate through society's view of older people? I think um, one of the things, and I try, I venture to talk about it with younger comedians. I actually say it to them, but it's with trepidation. Um, but, you know, the, the um, was it OK Boomer? Oh, yes. Uh, the, because a lot of comedians were doing that kind of material, actually really putting down old people. And I, sometimes I'd be on the same bill as the, you know, these comedians and they'd come off stage and I think surely you must put two and two together and realise that the pe- person you're talking about is me. And whilst, you know, funny is funny, but I have said it actually hurts. It actually hurts to have a younger generation that thinks it's cool to make fun of people because they don't remember their Apple ID password. Like, it's, it can be a joke. Mm. Often the tone is that you're stupid and you're selfish. And I think it's... Um, a beautiful thing to respect older people. And older people can be awesome, are awesome. On a personal level, how do you feel when you hear colleagues or people you don't know make those sort of derogatory remarks? I sort of, I, I, I roll my eyes a bit and think, oh, well, you know, I was young once and, and ignorant because I think that's what it is. Mm. I think it's a lot to do with ignorance. And it's that classic thing when we're, which humans are so brilliant at. If you haven't experienced something, you can be really ignorant mm. of it. And, you know, like people who haven't had kids will sometimes make ridiculous judgments. I, I keep looking at my young work colleagues going, you're going to be old one day, mm. you know, and you will be an old comedian. Like, why are you, like, it's going to happen. Yeah. That's the unique element of ageism as, a, as opposed to other forms of prejudice, that it's the one form of prejudice where you're discriminating against your future self. Yes. And I was also guilty of it. You know, I had ageist assumptions. Denise, I've got three final questions for you, if you can indulge me. Certainly. Firstly, if you could talk to yourself 20 years ago, what is the one piece of advice you would give? I would say get super earlier, for God's sake. Possibly even have a breast reduction. Um, But seriously, it would be just try and enjoy life. Yeah. March on, march forth and enjoy when the going's good, really enjoy it. Yeah. And and there's a lot in that practical advice about, about super as well. I mean, that's a really harsh reality, particularly for yeah. for for women um, who haven't been able to to build that up over the the preceding years. Yeah. What is the greatest thing about getting older? Uh, I won't say not caring what other people think of you, but pretty close to that. Mm-hmm. Not caring, you know, because I still get trolled on Twitter or you know, yeah. and I don't care. How did you build up that sort of resilience or, or um, ability to not be impacted by that sort of rubbish? 
I think because as as I you get older, and maybe it even started with my mum and her Alzheimer's back then, where I really, and you know, I hate to say it, it wasn't even like I felt like I had a choice in the matter. I had to really devote my life to her at that point. Yeah. Like, I mean, I still did my work and I had my family and stuff, but I think it was when I was looking after, actually really and truly looking after someone else that I didn't have time. And in fact, when my mum was in palliative care, she was dying and it was the last days of her life. And I'd done a show, a comedy festival gala, and I had made a joke. And in hindsight, it was badly worded and it was offensive. But initially it was people who were offended who came at me on social media and I accepted that. I felt terrible. But then it went into trolling, which is, and so people were um, calling for my death. Um, They wanted me on a current affair. The Herald Sun did a story on it. And I told my manager, I, I can't begin to care one Skerrick about, I hate the fact I've offended people. I hate that. I didn't intend to. But the, beside that, I'm sitting with my mum and she's dying and that's what I'm going to do. And I got really, it was weird. I was, it felt like mum was somehow protecting me from this outside attack that was happening. And, you know, I just sat in the peacefulness of palliative, it was, it was peaceful, in palliative care and it all sort of, blew over by the time I emerged. Mum died, I emerged, and it was all over. Isn't it amazing to have that perspective at at that particular point in time for what was going on for... You you can't begin to care about this when your mum is in her last days. Like, really? Yeah. Yeah. That was a big lesson, a really big lesson. And and it's true, it blew over. It was sort of all done. The final question for you, Denise, what is the one thing you hope for in your future? I hope that I continue to live life while loving someone and someone loving me. That's what I hope. That's a wonderful hope to have. Well, fingers crossed, John doesn't run off with, you know, <laughs> some bluesy meets at the retirement <laughs> card playing festival or whatever. Um, Denise, it's been a real privilege to, to speak with you. Thank you for all that you've shared with us. Uh, it's been really insightful, really enjoyable, and uh, as expected, very funny. So thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to have a conversation with Denise, who highlighted the importance of maintaining strong connections with those who are important to us and the value of understanding who we are and what we care about. Denise also reinforced the reality that ageism sadly does exist in all areas of society. Here at Booming, we are committed to changing the view of aging because aging isn't what it used to be and we need to apply new thinking to getting older. For more insights and inspiration, please go to the Booming website, booming.net.au.